In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammie and Sandy. Hi, all. This is Cammie. Rebecca DiLiberto is our guest today on Money Tales. Many of Rebecca's gifts in life were born out of losses she endured. At a young age, her parents divorced, her father died when she was in college, and her brother survived a freak accident that devastated his brain. These three events taught Rebecca money is about building a world to treasure the experiences with the people she loves. She now earns and uses money to keep those relationships as strong as possible. Rebecca is a partner at Digitel. She's also a freelance writer and editor for PBS, Los Angeles Times, the Boston Globe, the Huffington Post, and more. Previously, Rebecca was a producer of the new Ricky Lake Show. Hi, this is Sandy. Rebecca is a gifted storyteller, and she brings her money messages to life in this conversation. Three in particular to listen for are the habits and insights about money Rebecca took away from the two very different households she grew up in how major life events can precipitate money conversations, and how her and her husband's different approaches to money have created a path for personal growth. Be sure to stick around after this interview for my and Cammie's quick debrief on the discussion. Now, on to our conversation with Rebecca DiLiberto. Welcome, Rebecca DiLiberto, to Money Tales. Thank you. I'm really honored to be here. Please tell us a little bit about yourself, and if you would, provide two or three of the pivotal moments that make you the person you are. I am 46, and I live in LA with my husband and my young daughter, who's four. I am a creative consultant to companies, which means I work with a wide variety of incredibly intelligent, accomplished, amazing people, and just helping them tell their stories. So this is turning the tables on me, because I don't usually tell my own story ever, That background came from the fact that I've worked for a couple decades in a variety of storytelling modalities. I started out by being a magazine writer. I wrote for a lot of different publications and for newspapers. I was a Hollywood correspondent for the Boston Globe. I was a beauty editor at InStyle. I had a lot of different experiences before I realized that I was wanting to do something a little bit more Meaningful is always a meaningless word in some ways, because meaningful to whom? But I wanted to feel deeper roots of interest in my work. I went to graduate school and I got an MFA at Columbia in creative writing and I taught creative writing for a while, which was incredibly sustaining to help people bring a voice to the stuff that was inside them. After that, in the process of writing my own books, my agent said, you're taking a long time to write this memoir. Let me introduce you to some ghostwriting clients. So that became the primary career for a while, invisibly writing the stories of other people. 
it was incredibly instructive as well in terms of myself because I was putting myself in the shoes of all these different people and that helped me learn more about myself than any other of the more serious pursuits I had done. And then I came to LA, became a TV producer and started working with Dave Getch, who was my partner in these creative corporate pursuits. So that's my work scoop. My personal scoop is some of the things that have defined me. I had a very vibrant, crazy childhood, started out my life in New York City with my very glamorous parents who divorced when I was three and a half. So we moved to San Francisco when I was three and a half, my mom and I, and started a new life. And I would say that was probably the first defining thing, going from being part of a family unit to being a duo, living in Russian Hill in a rental instead of owning a giant apartment in New York City. It was an incredible childhood with my mom and my brother who later came along. So that first, having a single mom in a staid San Francisco society at fancy private schools where most people had intact family units and my mom was exciting single gal from New York. And that taught me a lot about social mores and relationships and closeness. I would say the second pivotal thing that happened was my father died when I was in college. His money tale is probably the most interesting of the ones in my quiver. So I'll share it with you later. I was 19 or 20, I can't even remember now. And that was jarring because he was obviously an extremely important presence in my life. Even though my parents were divorced, he was so important to me and an icon of mine in many ways. That was very defining. The third defining thing was another loss, which was a big accident that my brother had when he was in high school. And I bring these things up not to start off on a depressing note, but they taught me vis-a-vis money, really what matters about money, all these three events, which is being able to create a safe environment to be with the people you love in. That's all that really matters to me when it comes to money. It's just wanting to build a little world where I can treasure the experiences with the people that I still have. Sometimes that means comfort and luxury. And sometimes that just means a plane ticket to see somebody I haven't seen in a long time, whatever that means. I've realized that the relationships in my life are the most important thing. And so if I use money, it's to keep those relationships as strong as possible. That was a fantastic introduction. There are so many areas for us to go into. I'm going to start with your childhood because what an interesting time. You and your mom, you're young. You've moved to San Francisco. Did you know there was a lot of money when you were young? I did. That sounds weird. But I think the reason I knew was because it was really my dad's defining characteristic was that he was able to make a lot of money. My dad grew up very poor in Brooklyn. His dad was a longshoreman an immigrant from Sicily. His mom was a housewife. They lived very hand to mouth. My dad, starting at a very young age, basically took care of his family, whether it was picking up odd jobs or supplementing my grandfather's income and behavior and really taking care of them. Took on that role really young. He was also kind of a math savant. He went to Brooklyn College right after high school, but then quickly dropped out because he realized that he could make a lot of money on the commodities exchange. And that was the late 60s. I think he started learning the business. So by the time he was at his prime in the mid-70s, the commodities market was also at its prime in, in the mid-70s. And sugar was trading at ridiculous highs. And he traded coffee, sugar, gold, and cocoa. I think people who are familiar with markets now, certainly people who have academic knowledge of them, think of them as pretty stable and omniscient in certain ways, but that's not how the commodities market was at that time. It was a place where you could be a professional gambler and make a ton of money. That's what happened to my dad. He was just really good at what he did. In addition to being a number savant, he was extremely lovable, very charismatic. Everybody wanted to be around him. Joey D was what he was called. That was his badge moniker, shouting in the ring. 
it was a very romantic thing to be exposed to as a kid because there were just all these guys and they were really wild. It was like Lord of the Flies screaming orders and then you could see the boards changing prices and it was all happening in real time. A lot of my cousins and my brothers from my dad's first marriage worked on the exchange too. So you would see them on the wall phones screaming, you know, do you want this? Do you want that? The runners be going back and forth and you could still smoke. My parents divorced when I was so young. Whenever my mom would surrender me to my dad, that's what we did. I went to work with him. I played liars poker on the observation that it was life for me. And we live in a very nouveau riche way. My dad had a chauffeur who was also his best friend. He had a cord, a very beautiful old car, chauffeured Mercedes for the kids. And we lived in a five bedroom apartment in the UN Plaza where a lot of other people lived. We lived on the 24th floor and you could still open the windows then. Wild childhood for sure. Once my mom was in San Francisco, we had a very normal life in San Francisco, certainly extremely comfortable but not fancy the way that my parents had been before I was born and the way that my dad continued to be. Was that hard for you to go from one money situation to another? Really hard. These were high class problems because we lived in a gorgeous flat in Russian Hill. When I look back on what my mom set up for us, it cracks me up. I mean, we had a two story, three bedroom, four bathroom flat with her grand piano in the front. We were not paupers, but she managed to do a lot on a pretty modest settlement compared to what my dad had. My dad was still kind of living the high life, traveling a lot. He went to Africa on safari a lot. He built a house in Arkansas, a log cabin for duck hunting. He fancied himself like a Hemingway-esque character. It was a very vibrant, crazy time when I was with my dad. And then when I would come home, despite it not being as fancy, I think I felt much safer, for sure, around my mom. Why did you feel safer? Partly because the commodities business is a little bit scary for a kid to see. At that time, there were very few women. My dad actually hired one woman who became very successful and prominent in the field, but there were not very many women who were trained to do that work. And that was because that work consisted of screaming, intimidating, being comfortable taking a delivery of gold bullion in a truck in your driveway if you mess up a trade. There weren't a lot of women comfortable with that level of risk all the time. I was always the only girl. I had three brothers from my father's first marriage, and then my father, who was single, and my old nanny would come when I was there, my nanny from when I was a baby, so I would have like another woman around. I was in a constant state of vigilance when I was at my dad's house because they lived a hard scrabble Brooklyn boys kind of life. They were like a gang. And then with my mom, my mom was a Jewish social worker, super liberal. My dad was not. It was just a calmer, more gentle life with my mom and continues to be. My mom's still around. She's the best. My dad was much more highs and lows, really exciting. I started going to the bar with him probably at six or seven when the bell rang. 2.30, we were at the bar. You were allowed to sit on a bar stool then. You're not now as a kid. I think it's affected me a lot in my adulthood. My tolerance for risk is much lower than I think it would have been had I not experienced so much craziness as a kid. <laughs> so that was a big money takeaway for you. Huge money takeaway. And all my brothers, they're all really stable and they don't have high risk careers. Probably I have the most risk in my career because we have to have clients in order to survive. I'm responsible for the business. So in that way, I'm the most like my dad of all of us. But my brothers live very conservative lives because I think we all saw a lot of scary stuff. For example, when my dad started not having enough money, he made a few bad trades, the market changed, things started to become more computerized. The 70s and 80s were a very profound time of change for that industry. And my brother, Christopher, remembers when my dad needed money, his best friend, Hampton, would go into the closet, 
and pull out a big bag of Krugerrands and just count out enough to pay the bills and then go down and cash in the gold and come back. It was like play money world. Money was like monopoly money when I was growing up. I had to learn what it meant to pay rent. I remember so many things because I think also as a child, when your parents get divorced and you're little and you take on a lot more responsibility than you think you should. Our rent was $1,500 a month on Chestnut Street. I remember that in 1981. And then I would go see my dad and he would give me 300 bucks as an eight-year-old to go to Banana Republic for an hour. It was really dissonant the way that each of them looked at money. And my mom was much more nervous about it, but she did a really good job. We both went to really good private schools, my brother and I. She managed to make a lot out of a little. We bought a pretty modest house when I was like 10. And I, oh God, I remember this. My school was very fancy. It's called Burks. My friends there were really rich and mostly in an old money way, not a new money way. My dad would come into town and have a birthday party for me at Hard Rock Cafe and invite my whole class, buy them all stuff at Fiorucci and there'd be gift bags. So I appeared to be one of the richer kids, but in reality, I definitely wasn't. These people had generational wealth that was far greater than whatever we had. But when we moved from our rental house in Russian Hill to a very modest mid-century modern house in the middle of town, I had a couple of friends who were like, I don't think I can be your friend anymore. Are you so embarrassed to be living here? So tell us about that, because that sounds pretty devastating to a young person. It was crazy. It changed my whole perspective on my own identity. I felt humiliated, of course. And for me, a lot of that tied to my mom not being married. So I associated intact families with enormous houses and moms who decided to make a different way for their families in smaller, less impressive houses. And complicating this was that my father, still trying to win my mom back, came to San Francisco and bought a mansion three times the size of anything we'd ever lived in. And he didn't even live in it. He was trying to convince my mom to get back together with him and move into it, but she didn't want to get back together with him. It was 2,500 Broadway. It's on the market now for $17 million. We didn't live there. My dad would stay there when he would come to town and my three brothers would stay there. And he got a caretaker who lived in the basement. He owned it four years, five years. And when it was clear that she wasn't coming back, he sold it. That was confusing too, right? Because I could say to my friends, well, wait, we could go to my dad's house. <laughs> Let's just go have some tea in our three level backyard overlooking the bay. That was one of the main reasons I went to the East Coast for school because I really had been exposed to pretty high society snobbery through my whole life in San Francisco. And the city has changed so much now. Like it's not the same place it was when I grew up, but when I grew up, it was very old school. Rebecca, I'm curious, were you talking to your mom about these experiences with your friends at the time? No, definitely not. I didn't want to make her feel bad. I think she already felt bad. My mom to this day will question her decision to leave my dad because she'll say things like, well, I could have helped him keep his money, essentially stay alive because my dad died of a profound stroke the day he was going to have a big business deal comeback. And he got up in the morning and he was going to go to the city and he was setting up a new office with new backers after a really bad few years. And he was revved up and he sat down on his bed and he said to my stepmother, say goodbye to me. I'm going to die now. And he had a massive stroke. He lived for two weeks after that. His money worries killed him for sure. I think my mom feels a bit responsible for what she considers abandoning him because he needed her. He needed that influence, a calming, more rational person. But his whole identity was built on being a provider. I think that came from having kind of an abusive childhood, a ton of responsibility on a little boy. And my dad just drove himself into the ground and died at 54. So 
I didn't talk to my mom about it because I knew that she had such a huge emotional investment in having left him and I didn't want her to feel worse. Tell us about your brother's exiting because you said that was a pivotal moment in your life. It's defined my adult life more than any other thing in my view of what money is really for. He was 17 and there was just a freak accident, a group of friends in a car. He fell off a car and he landed exactly the wrong way on his head. He had a profound traumatic brain injury. It devastated his brain and also all his other systems. And he was in the hospital for the better part of a year. He survived it. So he's our family warrior. He shifted our consciousness completely in terms of what we value. He got his college acceptance letters when he was in a coma. He didn't go to college because he has a lot of really long-term deficits, but he also has a lot of long-term lessons that he teaches us all the time. It's kind of like having a Buddha around. It's 20 years since the accident, and he's thriving in his own way, and he's a gift to all of us. But if anything's going to make you think that having a really fancy house or fancy vacations or whatever is irrelevant, it's definitely seeing a loved one teetering on the edge and then being forever changed, because what's important is relationships. The money lesson from all of that is our healthcare system is so flawed, and for people who have no means, who have to put their kids in institutions after an accident like this, we should all feel responsible. You just need good health care and people who care about you. And in this country right now, people who have the people in place but don't have the funds, they die. You had a lot going on as a young person. Yeah, I know. And I'm pretty boring middle age. I got all my action in at the beginning of my life. But I still have a lot of problems with money. I'm not a great saver. I'm working on it. I absolutely have the gene of my dad in terms of wanting to be a provider and take care of everyone. The first thing I want to do when I get any money is get people what they want and need and have a hard time distinguishing between what people want and need. I definitely still associate, oh, a brand new giant TV is definitely going to make my mom's transition better from one big house to a smaller house. I've got to buy her the best TV. No, what's going to make her better is me sitting there having more tea with her rather than talking to her on FaceTime. But I definitely want to shower her with love in that way as gratitude for all she's always done for me. And I'm constantly trying to repattern. Spending money doesn't equal happiness, but it still feels that way to me. When did you start learning that? You mentioned your brother. So obviously this is an impactful time, but I know how we put two and two together. When I met my husband, actually, he's probably going to love that I'll tell this story, but we had gone on a couple of dates. We met online. We had a really long epistolary, is that the right word? Romance, where we wrote each other letters. When we finally met, it was pretty instant in terms of deep soul connection. We were immediately inseparable. On the third or fourth date, he told me that every time he started a new job, and he's a screenwriter, but at that time he was doing a million different things, art direction, all kinds of creative. He said that he would burn his first paycheck. He would cash it, and then he would burn the cash. And I was like, what is wrong with you? And I had this really outsized reaction. I channeled my Yiddish grandmother who grew up poor on the Lower East Side. And I was like, what a Shonda, which means a horrible crime against humanity. How can you do that? That's such a sin. There are people starving. Burning money is disgusting. I don't think I can be with you. And he was like, what? What are you even talking about? This is just my way of saying to myself, I never want to be a slave to a job. I want my life to be forged by my ideals and what's interesting to me and what's important to me and that I never want to do anything just for money. And money's just really not that important to me. And I was like, uh, (laughs) money is everything. We've been together 10 years now. That started a total rebooting of what I thought money was supposed to be, what it was for. I grew up traveling a lot, going to Europe a lot as a kid, going to 
really interesting places because my mom, even when my dad and she were not together anymore, really prioritized travel for us. And my dad also took us a lot of places. And Greg, my husband, did not. His parents, they went on one or two vacations a year by car in the U.S., national parks, really valuable, amazing educational stuff. But in the first few years of our relationship, I would always be like, oh, you were so deprived. Like, you're so unworldly. Meanwhile, like, he was sitting next to his dad, who was an astronomer, looking at the stars in Joshua Tree. You're telling me that's less valuable than going to a fancy hotel in Marbella, Spain? No, it's not. It's more valuable. Again, I was so disoriented because I associated any kind of success in life with what one's earning power was. And my own dad's story was a cautionary tale for me because I didn't divorce myself from the misunderstanding of money right after he died. I still felt terrible for him that he died poor and he wasn't poor, but he wasn't rich. I still felt worse about that than I did that he felt the pressure to earn was so intense that it killed him. I had completely miscontextualized his whole story until I met Greg. Money motivations are usually to either uphold an identity in our family or to take care of people. My husband's family doesn't have the same baggage with money as mine does. His father also grew up poor. His father also was a savant with numbers who ended up being the first person in his family to go to college and then went and got a PhD at UT and became a professor and a rocket scientist and worked on the first space shuttle. Not a high money career, but an incredibly rewarding, exemplary career that was so satisfying to him and started with a financial advisor when he was pretty young because she cold pitched a room of guy engineers in their 30s and was like, you guys need to start investing. And he listened to her. I think he might have been the only one. He started an account and they were very modest about their spending. And over the years, they built up a nest egg that allowed him to have a really solid retirement. And he became an astronomy professor after he retired because he could. And that's what he'd always wanted to do anyway. But he wanted to get a job initially that would support his family and then take care of himself later. So he did that. And he loved teaching astronomy. And he took pictures of astronomical observatories for National Geographic and became a contributing photographer. He followed his heart. So when I look at Greg's story about burning a paycheck, at the time it seemed offensive, but now I understand it was really, in some ways, an homage to his dad. Maybe he wished his dad would have been an astronomer from the beginning and not ever gone to the job that would pay the bills. I think we all realize that it's good that he did that or else Greg probably wouldn't even be here. Greg's allegiance is to self and mine for a really long time was to money and comparing what I had to other people. It's still a challenge not to do that, but he's helped me a lot. This relationship you have with Greg sounds very transformative to you. Yeah. And your continued evolution as an adult. How do these conversations between you and Greg go? It can be really helpful to have an outside event precipitate these conversations. And ours was talking about getting engaged. His family, smart money people that they are, were like, well, ask her if she has any debt because it becomes yours once you get married. That's what started this conversation about money and how we spend it and how we use it and what we need. My mother, and at that point, my wonderful stepfather, who came in later in our lives and was the best, they never asked whether Greg had any debt. Like, I don't think it occurred to them. But Greg's family always wanted their eyes open. I think that's the real difference between mine and his. Greg's family wants all the information, no matter how painful it is, so that they can make the right decision with their eyes open and feel good about the decision. My family, more 
gambling, risky family is always squeezing their eyes shut and their fists shut and jumping in and hoping it's going to work out. A lot of times it did, probably more than you would expect by chance, but a lot of times it did not. My dad never expected to die at 54, so he didn't set anything up. He didn't leave anything, really. I think Greg's parents probably had their retirement plans and life insurance and everything set up at 40. The first conversation started when we talked about that debt. I did have some debt at that point, nothing huge, but that brought up a conversation about how once in my 20s, I accumulated a ton of credit card debt in graduate school, and my mom and stepdad paid it off. And Greg was like, they should not have done that. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, they didn't want me to fall into ruin. Look, I'm meeting you. I don't have any debt. You probably wouldn't like me if I had that debt. No, if you had that debt, we would create a plan to pay it off together. But I would want to know. And I would also be really careful about making sure that you weren't racking up new debt. That's what it would tell me. What did you even learn from racking up debt that your parents paid off? You just got it paid off and you're going to rack it up again. Who wants these lessons? Greg was like always taking lessons. He's such a good person. I will take a free lunch. If you offer it to me, like I'll take anything that you're given. And Greg is way more noble in some ways. His family for what you've portrayed, this money isn't anything. However, it is important to talk about it, going in eyes wide open versus just hoping it all works out, learn lessons through it. So it is important. How have you all found the opportunity to reconcile your differences? Well, I'll tell you that I drive my mother-in-law crazy. She is a very vibrant member of our household through COVID that was solidified because my daughter was two when COVID started. She's four now, so she's edging back into a normal life. But for two years, she was home. I was working all the time and Greg was working all the time. And so his mom, Lorna, came into the fold and was our childcare provider pretty much. And she had to witness me spending money on stuff that she thinks is so stupid and spending so much money on things that are so stupid. For example, grocery deliveries. Now, at the beginning of COVID, it was a safety risk. I was very panicked about going to the grocery store. The number of boxes that were coming to our house with my mother-in-law, who is like a judicious saver and is 80 years old, she is so disciplined, you guys. Like She still has the same financial advisor she had when Larry hired her. And they still talk about purchases over $1,000. She makes that call. This is a woman who has a very comfortable retirement investment portfolio, and she is still that rigid. And then here I would be, there's one kind of spaghetti sauce we like. It's called Rayo's. It's 10 bucks a jar. At the beginning of the pandemic, I was like, oh my God, what if we can't get Rayo's? I better order two or three cases. So I ordered three cases and it was like $500, $600 worth of spaghetti sauce. And they showed up and Lorna was like, what? When you buy one of those not on sale, I can't believe it. And you've bought 50? Seeing the two families interacting now is hilarious because my family really associates comfort not with having money, but with spending money. And Lorna's family associates comfort with having money and not spending money. It would be really great if we could find a happy medium. In some ways we have, like we have a very manageable mortgage payment. We didn't choose a house that was going to strap us. We chose a modest house that we could fix up over the years. And so we're not house poor, and I'm very grateful for that. And that's all due to Greg, because I just wanted to get the thing that was the highest we could possibly qualify for, and I wanted a fabulous house. And Greg was like, mm, no, because you have your own company, and I have my own company, and if we don't get business, we'll lose our house. And I was like, what are you talking about? Our parents will pay for it. And he's like, see, that credit card debt, they shouldn't have paid your credit card debt. We're able to talk about it with humor, 
that is probably the most helpful part. And I'm also so self-aware about my foibles, despite not having been able to change to the extent that I would have liked. I don't go out there swinging and being like, we deserve a Tesla. I want to buy a Tesla because I know we can't afford a Tesla. And I know I make more money than a lot of our friends who have Teslas. So I've evolved in that way. Before Greg, I would have just bought it. Now I'm like, our Highlander is fine. It's also a hybrid. Granted, Tesla's totally electric, but you get my point. I no longer need signifiers of wealth the way that I did when I met him. And that has created actually higher self-esteem in some ways for me. I want to go back to your relationship with Lorna, though, because what you're describing can be really frustrating for people who have different habits around money. I drive her so crazy. Now, obviously, she's been in my life for more than a decade and we're really close, but we still fight sometimes. And it'll be over stuff like processed food, for example. She will buy Kraft macaroni and cheese for my kid instead of either making pasta with butter and cheese, which is what I do, or in a pinch buying Annie's macaroni and cheese, which is organic and doesn't have additives and is like four times as expensive. It will put us in this weird space where immediately I'll go for the jugular. So she'll say, I'm 81 years old and I grew up on Kraft macaroni and cheese and I'm fine. I'm very well preserved. And I immediately will want to be like, well, you had breast cancer. Why am I bringing that up? Like I'm trying to justify my life choices in a way that will make sense to her. It doesn't make sense. And the bottom line is I could say I have knowledge of food ways and systems and processing isn't good. And that's all true. But also we perceive of ourselves very differently. Lorna is somebody who likes to perceive of herself as the middle. She feels great about not taking too much, about not giving herself the best. That builds up her self-esteem. She doesn't need it. I want the best for my kids. I want her to wear organic cotton and eat organic macaroni and cheese. 10% of that is about perception, but 90% of it is about fear that she's going to get hurt. If I can affect her synapses or her epigenetic cancer cells, I want to do the best I can for that. And Lorna is just much more like, why wouldn't you put that $2 in the bank and then it'll double in seven years and then you'll have college tuition instead of Annie's mac and cheese. And she might be right, but given the same information, we don't make the same decision. That's the main issue with me and Lorna. What I love is you talk about it. Instead of letting it just fester and sit there, you talk about it, you present your sides. She deserves a lot of credit because she puts up with so much from us. She does not back down until you make her. And so because of that, funny, it actually facilitates these conversations in a way that you would think it would block them, but it doesn't. We far. What's the most outrageous thing you've done with money in your lifetime? I'll tell you a very mild one while I think of a major one. I wasted money on URLs that I thought would be valuable one day. (laughs) I was paying probably like $1,000 a year to GoDaddy.com for 20 years, keeping a stable of URLs that sounded really good to me. And some of them were really stupid. One of them was an idea for meeting a place to have a baby partner website, like a place you could exchange where you could go and say, I want to have a baby. Do you want to have a baby? And it was called whitewakeforlove.com. Another one was ratemybaby.com because I thought it would be funny if people put up pictures of their babies and then it was like a baby face-off. You pick the baby that was cuter. I guess I had babies on the brain in my 30s since I didn't have one. Another outrageous thing I have done with money. I have a slow burn outrageous thing, which is I still, in my time when I should be building a nest egg, 
do dumb medium level impulse purchases all the time that then add up to immense amounts, which are embarrassing and useless to me. It is outrageous because I've worked with so many CEOs. I know how a person should handle money. I know the attitudes that contribute to a successful retirement and happy family when it comes to this stuff. And I still throw away thousands of dollars a month on dumb stuff that is going to make me feel better for like five minutes. The cognitive dissonance that I do every day, which is if I put this thousand dollars away and did X, Y, or Z with it in 10 years, it would be worth X, Y, or Z versus if I fall for an internet ad for a $500 massage gun, when I don't even work out anymore, <laughs> like I'm going to order that in between my zoom calls. Like why? That's got to be part of what learner responds to. Honestly, we have so much stuff. Despite I know it makes me unhappy. I know clutter makes me unhappy. I still buy stuff all the time. Have you had other guests who have given you ideas about how to remind yourself that that short-term stuff isn't worth it? I think the advice that comes up most is just having a good perspective on what your values are and what you're trying to achieve. And sometimes that short-term gratification can be really helpful to us. You said knowing your foibles, but I think it's knowing that and then having Greg as your great partner, which I know it works both ways. That's what we're trying to encourage is having these money conversations. I bring it much more into my relationship now and it helps. It really does. doesn't mean you're not going to do these things. <laughs> I think Sandy's right. There's joy in it. Shame is always a really powerful emotion. When you can share your shame with your partner, which I really truly can with Greg, it's mind-blowing because shame is so isolating, usually. I remember having shame about being messy. I grew up with maids. I never learned how to pick up after myself. And so when I was in my 20s, my apartment was always a disaster to such an extent that I didn't want people to come over. I remember in New York City once a friend randomly stopped by, was ringing my bell, and I hid below the level of the bell because I was like, what if the glass does work two ways? I've never looked through it from the outside. What if she can see me? I made sure to leave the room near the bell. I crawled and hid under the covers for like an hour so she would hear no sign of life because that's how messy my apartment was. And I didn't want her to come in because I admired how together I thought she was. Greg is like the guy I let into my apartment always. I think everybody needs somebody like that. When you disclose your shame to Greg, do you find that the shame dissipates? Yes, absolutely. He's not like sunshine and roses, like, it's okay that you made this stupid mistake. But he reminds me of all the other things about me that are good. I suck at housekeeping. I'm not great at saving money. I'm great at making money. I'm great at getting people who I love things that make them happy and experiences that make them happy and keeping them together and feeling responsible, saving the day. I always do that. If somebody needs money, I give it to them. I love that I can be somebody who is a source of help for other people when they need it. The joke is though, I don't really have any savings. So what is that about? Greg will say like, what are you getting more out of helping other people or having a sense of financial security. And I can be honest with him and say, helping other people, truly. He's like, then it's okay. A ranch in Arkansas, a house on Broadway, an apartment in the UN Plaza doesn't really add up to much if you're not alive. And so for me, having relationships where people feel supported has been more important than building wealth. But in my later 40s, I've got to figure it out. I have to start building wealth. So Greg, I'm sure will keep me on track on that. Your daughter is young. 
when you look out at her future, what do you hope her relationship with money is? Well, let me just start by telling you that the other day she did not know what cash was. And then we started having this conversation about it. And she's like, why do you work so much? And I was like, well, because I have a different kind of job. And she's like, well, why does anybody have any kind of job? And I realized like she didn't even understand that jobs equal money. She goes to Montessori school and they call their jobs work. And she thought we were just like working all day for our own edification, which in a weird way is kind of beautiful. And I explained to her that in order to get the things we need, we have to make money. And I make it one way and daddy makes it another way. And that's what keeps us able to have a house and stuff like that. And then, of course, she said, what about people who don't have money? And let me just reinstate, we are not rich. We have enough to live and we like to share it with other people. So I said to her, part of the duty of having money is you have to share it with other people. If you have enough to get all the stuff you need, you have to make sure that people who don't have enough to get the stuff they need have some help from you. You could help them with your mind, you could help them with your hands, or if you can help them with your money, that's great too. But that's part of what it means to have money is to help other people have money too. You can't just have it and keep it for yourself. And she was into that concept. Kids really don't like the idea of hoarding. They're not into that. Maybe some kids are, but the idea that it could be useful to her, I'm happy that that resonates with her. I want her to know that money is to be used for things to make life better. My goal for her would never to be, I don't want her to think I want to grow up and make a lot of money. I want her to think I want to grow up and use the money that I make and make as many people happy as possible. What's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? It's going to be with my mom because we are going to sell her house that she's had for 30 years in San Francisco. And it's fraught with complications because the San Francisco market is very crazy. We're all very nervous about what it will bring because it represents a huge amount of my mom's next 20 years. Hopefully she'll live that long. Her life's going to be determined by what she sells her house for and what she decides to buy with the proceeds. We're going to have to talk to her about how important space is to her, how important neighborhood is to her, how important being really close to us is to her versus being 15 minutes away. That money conversation is going to be huge because she's going to have to be really honest about the latter part of her life. And I want to make her happy. She took care of me my entire life. I want to take care of her. But I also want to make sure that my brother has enough of some kind of an investment going into the future that he'll always be able to be taken care of by caregivers and stuff like that. And that requires some capital. So when we get capital from her house, we have to make the right decisions. I'm actually pretty nervous slash intrigued about that conversation. It sounds like a really big, important one. I think I'm going to have to have another money conversation with my accountant about the fact that I dread doing my taxes and I'm constantly filing extensions and I have to do them. I don't understand why our system is so complicated and it creates resistance. I've had 90% of all the information ready for like six months at this point, but because I don't have the last 10%, I don't hand them in and then I feel terrible and that creates more shame. And then I have anxiety that I'm going to owe more than I have. It just perpetuates. It's awful. Good luck with both of those conversations. (laughs) And thank you for sharing so much about your life and your experience with money with us. This has been a really enlightening conversation. You're someone who seems to be very aware and in touch with what's most important to you and your values. And that's always a great place to be. So thank you. Well, I accept that compliment with a lot of gratitude because I work hard on establishing the values and now I have to work harder on living the values <laughs> a little better, being a little bit less impulsive and more responsible. That's part of who you are. That's what makes, makes you <laughs> Rebecca. 
Sandy, let's go a little deeper on the three money messages from our conversation with Rebecca that we called out in the intro. Would you talk a little more about the habits and insights Rebecca took away from having two very different households where she grew up in? From all these money tale conversations we have with our guests, we know that the experiences each of us has as a child make a large imprint on our perspectives and habits around money. One of the interesting things I found in our conversation with Rebecca is how she grew up in two different households because her parents divorced when she was young, and they were very different households from a money perspective. Rebecca said life with her mom was calm and gentle whereas life with dad was wild and crazy and full of risk. Her parents were modeling very different money values and behaviors for her, and she was taking that all in. An important thing for us and our listeners to remember, especially if we have children in our lives, children especially are apt to make their own observations about what's happening from a money perspective around them and take in their own lessons. And sometimes those are the exact lessons you're hoping they'll take away from your modeling and your conversations, but sometimes they aren't. This is the situation where money conversations can be really, really helpful. And for Rebecca, certainly her dad with his exciting lifestyle, making lots of money and taking all those risks as a trader, were making an impression on her. Another thematic piece of this conversation with Rebecca is how major life events can precipitate money conversations. And I'm curious what your thoughts are about Rebecca's comments in this area. I love the story about Greg's family when they got engaged, how direct they were. And to be honest, as I'm saying, I loved it. It actually made me feel uncomfortable. I was in Rebecca's shoes thinking, oh my gosh, I can't imagine them being so direct and asking this question. And then I sat with it for a little bit and I realized how brilliant. It wasn't a question asked in order to stop something. It was just a really open, honest, let's get it out there. The term she used was Greg's family go into these things, eyes wide open. I appreciate that my tendency is maybe more on Rebecca's side, close your eyes, jump in, don't ask the questions. Unfortunately, more from that's awkward and it shouldn't be. I think what Greg and his family modeled was absolutely excellent. You should know, you should ask these questions. Doesn't mean it's a deal breaker. Both people then are more informed. We know behaviors and we can solve any of the challenges. I appreciated that message and Rebecca's ability to bring that to life. All major life events, having a baby getting married, going to college. I'm not going in any particular order, by the way, as you can tell. There's always a money aspect to these life events and they can be such great money conversation starters. I want to encourage all of our Money Tales listeners to think about the major life events coming up in your life and using those as catalysts to have important money conversations with those in your life who are really important to you. Let's get to our third topic. We brought up that Rebecca and her husband's approaches to money were very different and how that created an opportunity for personal growth. Would you talk a little bit more about that? When they got married and the families were having some money conversation, that was probably a good starting point because Rebecca disclosed her history with some debt and that caused some really great conversations between her and her husband. It sounded like Rebecca was a little concerned up front about being judged 
But as she and Greg have continued to be married and have had lots of money conversations, it sounds like there's a lot of confidence there and love in their conversations. And I appreciated what Rebecca said toward the end of our conversation about her ability to express shame to her husband and how that is such a healing event for her when it happens and how Greg is there with love. He reminds her of all the great qualities about her and makes her feel good about herself. I loved the trajectory of growth that was embedded in the stories about her and Greg that Rebecca shared with us. Sometimes we build shame up in our own minds. And if we talk about, in this case, a money shame, most of them are really not that big of a deal. We've created this big monster in our head. And I think their relationship dynamics and openness to talk about it and his great perspective on, well, wait a second, this is what makes you also beautiful and why I love you. I thought that was great. Rebecca is such a great storyteller. It was a privilege to hear her stories and we're so thankful that she was our guest. So thank you, Rebecca, for being on Money Tales with us. And to our listeners, we really appreciate you joining us on this journey. We always welcome you sharing our Money Tales podcast with anybody you care about. Please subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform and share a little note that really helps us get the word out. And personally, if you would like to email Sandy and me, you can reach us at podcasts at Asperient.com. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.